This is Base Layer, brought to you by Arca. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. Welcome back to Base Layer. This is David, and this is your new episode with Mike Maples Jr. from Floodgate. Mike is one of the most legendary investors I know and someone who has gotten a lot of respect out there. He was one of the first investors, if not the first investor of Twitch and Twitter. Uh, I remember hearing those stories and hearing about how he came about. And Mike has really just solidified himself as one of the best investors out there. He is humble, he is a pragmatist, and he just has the amazing way to think about the world. And so we had a really great conversation about pre and post world as it relates to COVID-19, as it relates to the venture market. We talked about valuations, we talked about down rounds, we talked about some of the themes that he is looking at in terms of like healthcare and education and working at home. We also talked a lot about Bitcoin. And so we talked about, you know, why that would be important right now. We talked about some of the federal stimulus and some of the money printing that's gone on and the role that Bitcoin can play and all of that. And so this is just an amazing conversation with someone who I deeply respect. And after this, you will too, if you don't know Mike already. So remember, nothing on Baselayer is investment advice. So please do your own research. And on the flip side, you're going to hear an amazing conversation with Mike Maples Jr. from Floodgate. Enjoy. This is David, and welcome back to Base Layer. I have probably one of the most exciting guests I've had on in some time, and an honor and a privilege to introduce Mike Maple Jr. to the show today. Mike, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, David. So Mike is a partner at Floodgate, a investor that I not only deeply, deeply respect, but has gotten the respect of the entire community out there of early stage investors. Mike, early, some of his investments were in Twitter and Twitch and uh, Demand Force and Chegg. He has been a leader in the space. He has an amazing origin story and he's just one hell of a guy, you know, just someone that I have leaned on once in a while because his insight and his humanity are bar none, probably some of the best in the world. So, Mike, you know, we are living in a very, very weird time. You know, we were talking about that before offline. And so, you know, with that, you know, I wanted to obviously get a sense from you. You know, how is everyone over there on your side of the neck of the woods? You know, I'm in here in New York and you're out on the west side. Um, How's everyone, you know, kind of dealing with COVID-19 and this global pandemic? You know, what are you seeing? What are you feeling? You know, what's going on on your side? Well, I think it, it it varies quite a bit. I'd say that in my immediate circle, we were all very concerned very early. Uh, you, you may remember some of the tweets that went out from mm-hmm. um, a good friend of mine, uh, Balaji Srivasan, That's right. about the risk of this. And I think that some of us really picked up on it quickly because we were in the business of either starting or funding network effects businesses. And so you could see what the viral coefficient was of this disease. Mm-hmm. And that really got our alarm bells going. And so a lot of us were sheltering in place even before it was a, it was a thing. Mm-hmm. The infamous R not number, correct? Yeah, that's right. 
Yeah, a lot of people didn't know about that, but when I started seeing this and Balaji and I kind of were in the same simpatico time frame early January when it was about two and a half to four, you know, I, it was interesting, I had started taking an online course, a MOOC uh, from Stanford on network effect, even though obviously I've been involved in early stage venture and things in digital assets for a while, I understood network effect, but I wanted to kind of hone in on it. And so it had talked about the Medici family and about how, you know, the effect that they had on the families within the region. And this idea of the r naught number is something that is incredibly important. And you're right. I think it's those that have experience with network refract really were able to say, okay, this is important. And so, you know, I want to get a sense from you, you know, obviously as one of the, as I said, in my opinion, and I know in the opinion of a lot of other people, one of the more prolific investors in early stage companies out there, you know, how has this virus affected the venture market? And from your sense, and as I say this with prestige, you've been investing for a while now, you've seen a few different market cycles, you know, in the grander scheme of things and the events that you have witnessed before, how do you think this is kind of, you know, gaming up to that? Is it something that you've just never seen before? Is it something similar that you can kind of do a relative value to that you kind of, you've seen it, you feel it, you understand it, and you kind of know how things are going to play out? Well, I guess I would start by saying, um, I'd caveat everything I'm about to say with, I'm not certain. And everybody I know who has a strong opinion about what's going to happen, I'm a little skeptical of because it's just, there's just so much uncertainty right now, which I don't necessarily regard as a good thing, but it's to have super, um, super conviction right now about what's going to happen. Uh, the advice that I'm giving the startups though has been pretty consistent. So I believe that in the, in the late 2010s, startups owned their runway by growing rapidly within 18 month increments. And so for the most part, you assumed that if you achieved your milestones, you'd raise in 18 months and you tried to do everything that you could to be growth first. And, and the capital markets were flush with cash. And for the most part, those startups did get rewarded. I would argue some, some got rewarded too much. I think now owning your runway means having 36 months of it if you can. And um, I like to say that startups now that, that have short runways are increasingly fragile and startups that have long or infinite runways if they're profitable are increasingly anti-fragile. And what we're, what we're trying to help people do is understand that fragile doesn't work in uncertain times, that the best, the best type of startup you want to be is, is not even just resilient. You want to be the type of startup that thrives in chaos, that thrives on uncertainty. Uh, and so I like the, the sort of the anti-fragile metaphor that mm -hmm. Taleb uses uh, to describe what we're really looking for. And so from the macro perspective, are you seeing more down rounds out there? And are you seeing more bridges? Are you seeing, you know, some of those founders out there, are you they processing this idea of being anti-fragile fast enough? And in terms of the effects on valuation, um, you know, I've seen this long enough where, you know, as you alluded to, there was a lot of cash out there. You know, the the markets out there were full of it. And all of these companies, you know, if you got through your Series A, 
and you started to build, you know, revenue and you started to build a good Kager, you were rewarded handsomely out there with more capital than you probably needed. And so, you know, are you seeing, what are you seeing kind of from the metrics out there? Are you seeing more down rounds? Are you seeing founders kind of scrambling for bridges? And then what do you think the effects on the valuation side of things? You know, we have, you know, in my opinion, I think in a lot of other people's opinions, you know, the larger entities like the vision funds were distorting valuations for a while with so much capital to put to work, you know, kind of give us a sense of some of the KPIs that you obviously and your team look at on a regular basis. What are you seeing there as a a cause and effect from the virus? Yeah, well, for the most part, and, and we'll see how this plays out, David, but the advice I give to founders is try not to be in a position where you have to raise money at all anytime soon. Unless unless you have a pre-existing relationship and valuation hasn't been hit. So deals are still getting done and things are still happening. But what I find is that you don't want to be reliant on the capital markets, especially when the capital markets are freaked out and irrational. And so um, that's that's the main issue is I, I think we're heading into this uncertain window where it's almost like you're in an airplane flying through the clouds. You can't see in front of you. You don't know how long the clouds are going to last. You don't even know if you're going forward. You don't even know if your plane is upside down. And so you want to be instrument trained through the uncertainty and just be hyper aware of your metrics and, you know, own your runway in the sense that you don't have to depend on external variables that you can't control because none of those external variables can be predicted. And Mm -hmm. so that to me, it's all about getting control of your runway. And, and it's like, rather than uh, how much do we have to grow in the next 18 months to raise, I think you're better off saying life as you know it is over when it comes to that. And that instead, what you should do is, you know, figure out how much cash you have, try to, try to make it last for 36 months, and then um, work backwards from your monthly burn cap to reconcile it with your current plan. And so let's talk about some of the ideas that you propagate at Floodgate. So there's agility and strategy, value stack, no limit, and democratization. And so as it relates to the pandemic, you know, and your conversations out there with founders and other investors, I'm kind of curious how things are working through that. But in addition, I really want to focus on the value stack. So you have written before that one of the components of that is Metcalf's law. And for those that are listening that are also in the digital asset landscape, that's something that we look at a lot as to determine digital assets. And so I'm curious with so many, with millions and billions potentially people, you know, just alone in India, 1.3 billion people are, are on lockdown. And obviously here in the United States, you have a fair amount of the population in lockdown. What type of network effects do you think we're going to start seeing? You know, everyone, and I'm, I'm guilty of this, <laughs> I'm going on TikTok every, you know, once in a while just to kind of decompress, just to kind of get out of, you know, hearing about, you know, the, the case numbers and the deaths and just the kind of the carnage in the market. You know, everyone also now moved over to Zoom when uh, United Airlines and Delta and uh, American and all the other ones kind of suspended flights. I kind of back in January, I said, okay, well, Zoom is probably going to be real interesting because everyone's got to work. So, you know, with your ideas and and the things that you look at and this idea of the value stack, you know, what do you think some of the trends are and what do you think some of the network effects are going to be and what kind of companies 
are you looking at or do you think are going to be birthed from this, you know, and obviously in some respects, this horrible time in, you know, in the, you know, the history of our lives and, and our society, what do you think is going to come out of this? Well, hard to say. Um, my, my core thesis really remains intact, and that is that um, capitalism is shifting from a corporate-centric model where, you know, basically from 1870 till 2000, mass production and mass distribution were sort of the guiding principles of corporations. And I think that now we're heading into a world, have been, that's characterized more by network capitalism, which is animated by mass computation and mass connectivity. And so the mass computation side of it is more of a Moore's law thought. It's that, you know, you can have exponentially increasing abundance of computation, um, the ability to sequence a genome, transistors on a chip, things like that. And then mass connectivity is really an instantiation of Metcalfe's law, which talks about how the, the value of the network becomes exponentially more valuable as more people join it. So um, when I look at it through that lens, there's, there's four or five things that I think are pretty interesting on a go forward basis. The first would be healthcare. So, um, you know, I think hospitals have gummed up the works, unfortunately. I think the people in the front lines are doing a great job and work really hard. But, you know, kind of this bureaucracy of the hospitals and the insurance companies and everything, I think that um, it's likely with loosening of restrictions for telemedicine that some really interesting um, telemedicine products could happen. But in general, I think that healthcare will move more and more to the edge for diagnosis, for treatment, for, you know, monitoring somebody's temperature as they walk into a restaurant or a gym. I think that, that just more and more healthcare um, diagnoses will be handled at the edge without the assumption that you visit a place to do it. And then I think education is in a similar situation where the universities in K to 12 aren't delivering enough valuable, you know, they're not delivering enough value, value relative to how expensive and bureaucratic they've become. And so um, I think that we'll, we'll learn a lot about what's possible with distance learning. I mean, I guess we have to. And then I think that um, supply chains are likely to relocalize. And I think that that will be, um, helpful for companies that are involved in advanced manufacturing, 3D printing for industry. And then um, obviously, I mean, you kind of talk about this, David, but um, if you you kind of think of it in the large, I think uh, companies that um, benefit from remote behaviors and distributed Mm -hmm. workforces are going to do well. You know, Zoom is on fire, but I think that, that there's going to be more of an acceptance that distributed teams can work effectively together. And I think companies that enable distributed teams to function better will do well. And I think that's incredibly interesting. So you talk about this idea of the prime movers and it's a idea and a concept that I really love. And so the prime movers are the ones, you know, creating companies that obviously have the ability to scale up and obviously win at the end of the day. And so what role do you think some of those prime movers in this period, this global pandemic, you know, that may change the world? Who do you, you know, I'm not asking you to kind of forecast. I'm not asking you to kind of put on, 
you know, get a crystal ball here, but the role of the prime mover, you know, it's my opinion, and I tweeted this out yesterday, that I think, and I think other people have, have said this too, so it's not that prolific, but that some of the most important companies will be born during this time period. And you're alluding to obviously some of the places, you know, healthcare, education, those are obviously very large, total addressable markets. And so what do you think the role of the prime mover is right now in creating, you know, one of the most iconic, important companies that we may, you know, get to see in our lifetime right now? Yeah, well, I think that, that um, you know, the term prime mover to me is um, startups, I like to say a startup is not a company. It's um, it's a set of prime movers and a, a unique set of insights about the future. And in many ways, they're like time travelers and they come back to the present with a secret from the future. And then they they create a movement by recruiting early members who believe their secret. And then one day the their wisdom becomes the conventional wisdom and that people move to that different future. So I think those people, um, they emerge in good times and bad. And so I have full faith that, that we'll see more. Um, so, so I, I think that the, the advantage that some of these entrepreneurs are going to have though, in the current time is that, um, chaos is the friend of the bold and the entrepreneurial. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of aspects of the economy that are going to go through a major reset. And these types of change events, I believe will cause people to be willing to have different conversations and, accept or maybe not accept prior premises is true, but, but be open to new ideas and new ways to do things. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. Some of the startups that I'm working with already have um, stepped into the breach, whether it's to help deliver food to consumers or uh, print swabs with 3d printers or just things that um, you would have, you would have never gotten the customer to agree to in mm-hmm. the past but things where now you have everybody's attention. You can, if you could solve a problem that someone's desperate to solve, they'll, they'll consider anything. And so it's a pretty interesting time for that. I'm curious. So from your perspective, cause you're a historian on this too, and I know that we didn't necessarily prepare for that, but the idea of wartime innovation has always been very interesting to me, especially the last few months. I've been reading more about it and thinking more about it. And so this idea is that we're in a war, you know, against obviously COVID about, you know, the president calls it an invisible enemy, but it's not really that invisible. Uh, the data is there and it's been there for months. But irregardless of that, you know, we are basically in a wartime. You know, the president authorized the DPA and we're having companies out there producing, you know, PPE and ventilators, obviously Tesla. I don't know if you saw the video that Tesla showed about a week, uh, a day or two ago. They already have their uh, unit, which is amazing and a testament to you know, ingenuity and engineers, you know, God bless them. Thank you for doing that. Um, you know, back, I think it was World War One. you know, we saw some of the technology that, you know, effectively made the microwave. Um, and so do you think this is kind of a wartime innovation period where, you know, you alluded to it, but, you know, it's my opinion that I think, you know, we'll see some amazing innovation happening here. And I think, you know, from your perspective, would you say that because things have moved to much more of a capital light way. It's not really capital intensive these days. You know, you've seen the Airbnbs, you've seen the Ubers, you've seen all of these companies become much more cap light. Do you think that also works very well into what we're going to see, you know, potentially in this big wartime innovation period? Well, I, it's interesting because I think that there there will be a few things and 
I, I don't love all of these trends, but I kind of have to look at things for what they are. If, if the government keeps spending money the way they have and continues to, they, they, may, they may conclude they have to, pretty soon the government is going to be a larger, a larger function of our GDP than it's ever been before. And so, you know, I think that's going to have impact on uh, taxing the big tech companies. I think it's going to have an impact on uh, work programs that were sort of like what happened in the New Deal. Uh, so there may be investments in hard tech to keep people employed. Um, so, and, and I, you know, not all those things are going to be great in my view. Uh, but, but I, I think it kind of is what it is. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I think that, that, um, it's, it's similar to, it's similar to wartime, but I guess it's also similar to the great depression that I think that this, the common thread is that every now and then it's a little bit like evolution. You go through these periods of punctuated equilibrium. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you study the fossil record, you see all the animals look the same and then all of a sudden they look different for some reason. Mm-hmm. And it might be because an asteroid hit the earth or it might be because there was a flood, but, but it kind of washed out the prior sort of the prior linear progress. And so I think that we're going to see some rethinking of some key assumptions about the economy and about um, the government's role in it, about, um, about distributed work versus everybody working in the same building. I think there's just going to be some um, reimagining of some of the assumptions that where we needed to call the question for a while. Mm-hmm. But I also think that there are going to be some side effects that we're not going to like. So let's talk about that. You alluded to, you know, the government spending. So we just passed a $2 trillion stimulus package. Um, for those that were in the capital markets, they saw that in the last parts of March, there was about a trillion dollars coming into the repo markets on a daily basis. There is debate currently right now. I think Speaker uh, Speaker Pelosi is uh, potentially putting together another trillion dollar package. And so some are kind of earmarking or forecasting that this is going to cost us, you know, upwards in the range of six to seven trillion dollars by the end of it. And so I would love to get your current thoughts on Bitcoin. Um, you know, I've had you talk at FO256 about a year and a half ago, which was a joy. And for those that want to see it, uh, there is some video there. And Mike gave an amazing speech on that. Um, so what are you currently thinking on Bitcoin and digital assets and the world of blockchain where we're seeing, I would say, more mistrust in government and central banks? Yeah, well, it, it, it's interesting. I, I, um, I'm fascinated by Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. I'm probably not as religious about it as some might be who follow it. Um, I, I sort of look at it like I'm a customer of money. And in theory, I can get money from different types of money providers, just like I could, in theory, get any kind of product. And so, you know, who who gets to control things? Well, one set of people that can control things are the government, and they generally use force in the law, and that's fiat currency to me. The other would be controlled by a commons or decentralized. And to me, that would have been, once would have been the gold standard, that would be Bitcoin or other applicable cryptocurrencies. And then um, the other type that, that people don't really talk about very much, but it, it would be pr- a privately issued currency. So I'm fascinated by a world where someday Amazon decides to, to issue prime coin. And as a customer of money, do I trust Jeff Bezos to manage his money supply 
more than I trust the U.S. government, maybe I do someday. And so I kind of look at it like um, I, I want to see open markets for different types of money. And then as the customer money, I'm not held hostage to any one type if I don't agree with how it's being managed. That's an interesting thought. You know, it's we're seeing this world evolve where we're seeing reference assets, where this whole world of DeFi and open finance has really opened up some amazing ideas. And so, you know, we will have to see. There's been a lot of speculation. There's been a lot of talk. Well, Bitcoin, you know, in terms of the price, when the markets capitulated down, Bitcoin also went down. And then people started to realize that a lot of the speculators out there, the fund managers, the GPs out there, were over levered and they had to basically sell anything that wasn't locked down. And so that was what potentially caused some of the price fluctuation. And now obviously we've seen a bit of a rebound. You know, I think, you know, if you and I can agree on this, and I think you would agree on, I don't know about you, but to me, I'm less interested in the Bitcoin price versus the value proposition of what Bitcoin does for society. Do you agree with that or disagree? I, I would fundamentally, I would agree. So the, the one of the advantages of having multiple money providers, right? Like in the current example, is that it's actually better for the U.S. government as well. It's better if if I as a customer can take my money business elsewhere. It forces the people that offer fiat currency to have some level of accountability for how they treat their money. Uh, whereas I, I don't really think that's been happening in the last 30 to 40 years. So, um, so I think it's, I think Bitcoin will be a good, uh, accountability mechanism. Mm -hmm. And I also think that Bitcoin will be good for, um, countries in the developing world who already have currencies that are far more vo volatile than, than Bitcoin. Uh, so I think that a lot of people tend to look at Bitcoin through the Western world lens, but I think there's a lot of a lot of countries where it wouldn't surprise me if they if they decide that Bitcoin is key to their monetary policy. Agreed. And so as we wrap up, and uh, I can't thank you enough for coming on, you know, two things that we'd like to do with our guests just to get to know them a little bit more on a personal level. And everyone knows this, but, you know, I always ask anything that you've been reading lately, hopefully you've had some time to kind of decompress and read a little bit. Uh, it can be related to anything out there, but anything that you've read recently, book, article, and what kind of music you like? <laughs> well, let's see. Books that I've read recently. Um, I I have a, it's it's a little bit of a guilty pleasure. I probably read a little bit too much. Um, let's see. What have I liked recently? I, I liked a book called Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke. So you may have heard of this one. She was a professional mm -hmm. gambler, yep. professional poker player. Yep. And so I, I like that book because I think it has a lot of frameworks for contemplating decisions that involve uh, a combination of skill and randomness. So I like that one. Um, I, I like Machine Platform Crowd, but that's a little bit more of a 2019 book than it is a, a 2020 book. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, I've, there's there's been a lot that I've that I've liked recently, um, but most of them have been about dealing with uncertainty. So I've been going sort of going back and trying to, you know, fortify my knowledge of how to operate in an uncertain world. And music, I have a feeling I'm going to enjoy the answer to this one. <laughs> yeah, I'm a little bit all over the place. I you know, 
I grew up in Oklahoma, so I'd never mm-hmm. listened to anything but country music until I was a teenager. <laughs> and then, uh, and then I, as a child of the eighties, I like a lot of the eighties, uh, music, uh, pop music. Uh, but, but I'm sort of all over the place. I, it, it's hard for me to, to say that there's one style that I like better than the others. Well, there you go. I had a feeling there was some country in there. I just had a feeling it was in my gut. I knew it. I remember you telling me where, you know, you grew up. And so I was like, ah, oh. you know, you got to, I've done about 130 of these and no one has said country yet. So I was kind of hoping that you would say some country because I needed that there. Um, and so, you know, what do we also like to do is where can people, you know, that are listening, the family offices, the other institutional investors out there, you know, where can they, you know, find out how to get in touch with you guys at Floodgate? Yeah, probably, probably the best way would just be Mike at floodgate.com, which is my email address. Uh, or, you know, I, I like to banter with folks on Twitter. So I'm at M2JR on Twitter. But I, you know, I'd, I'd love to, to the extent that any of your listeners are interested in collaborating around some of these thoughts. Uh, I've been really, really looking for kindred spirits because there's so many questions, you know, what's, what's going to happen to the Euro and the Eurozone and all all this, what's going to happen with lending and debt, what's going to happen with sovereign wealth funds. I mean, there's just so many macro things. What's going to happen with commercial real estate and then private equity and real estate investment trusts. There's so many things that, that could happen and go in lots of different directions. And so I'm always looking for people to talk to and riff on this who, you know, have, have a well-informed opinion. Well, I would suggest with every bone in my body that you reach out to Mike and I've gotten to know you for a few years now. And as I said at the onset, it's been an honor and a pleasure. And the way you think about the world is pragmatic, but it's also forward thinking. And I think, you know, that is two very important ingredients to make one heck of an investor. And that has definitely been you. So this again was Mike Maples Jr. from Floodgate. And it has been an honor. And thank you, sir, for joining us. And hopefully we'll be catching up soon when we can actually see each other, you know, catch a beer. And, you know, hopefully the world has healed itself. Thank you for joining us, Mike. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much, David. It's a pleasure. For more notes from this past episode about our guest, please go to www.ar.ca slash base layer. Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice, which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. Statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you like what you're listening to on base layer, let us know. Subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter, Arca at Arca, or myself, David Nage at DavidJN79. Let us know, and we'd love to obviously hear from you. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space and the financial terms you understand, please visit www.ar.ca for articles, market commentary, videos, and more.